You are listening to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. As my listeners know, I've been an advocate, board member, and frequent speaker for the Innocence Project of Florida going back to 2009. Along the way, I met one of our guests, who is Bill Dillon. He has a special place in my heart as he was exonerated with the help of the Innocence Project of Florida in 2008. He spent 27 and a half years in prison, an innocent man. Bill is a singer-songwriter, and we will hear Black Robes and Lawyers, one of his creations, at the end of this segment. Our second guest today is Ellen Moskowitz, Bill's wife. Ellen is a leading authority on the business of DNA testing, having run two of the largest DNA testing businesses in the country. She was VP of Laboratory Corps, LabCorp of America for 20 years and president and CEO of DNA Diagnostic Center. Ellen wrote the book about Bill's ordeal that we will be discussing today. It's called Framed, the Corruption and Cover-Up Behind the Wrongful Conviction of William Michael Dillon and His 27-Year Fight for Freedom, published in 2023. Welcome to you both, Bill and Ellen. It's such a great pleasure to have you both here. Hi, Harriet. It's really great to be here. Hi, Harriet. All right. So we've so much to talk about. Your book was truly a labor of love, and it took 10 years to write, and it's 370 pages. Why did you write this book, and why did it take so long to finish? Well, Harriet, Bill and I wrote the book together. Of course, I did the writing itself, but it's Bill's story. And I met Bill in 2009 in an Innocence Project conference in Houston. He had just been released four months prior to the conference, and he was very new in the world. I met him there. I was on duty, and uh, he was one of the guests. However, when I saw him across the room, I assumed he was an attorney. <laughs> he just looked the part. <laughs> I thought he was an attorney with the Texas Innocence Project. <laughs> yeah, but to my surprise, he began to tell me his story after we were introduced. And I have to tell you, it left such a strong impression on me that I could not get it out of my head for days and days. We had an instant rapport when I met him, and we exchanged contact information and began to speak on the phone on a regular basis. And as he told me more and more about his story, I realized that the world needed to hear this, that if this was true, that more than just a small town sheriff's department and state attorney's office needed to know what had gone on in this case. I had worked in this field for many, many years doing DNA testing through my companies for plenty of people who had been incarcerated. And uh, we did the testing regardless of whether they were innocent or guilty. But as I listened to Bill and realized how important the DNA testing had been, I really felt akin to him and felt that his stories needed to be put in print. And as our relationship continued, I began to learn more and more. And it took a long time for Bill to be comfortable telling me everything that had happened to him. And as time went on, I found we were actually still living in the case together because our relationship had progressed. We were actually living together at this point. 
and new facts were coming out all the time. So we couldn't finish a book when the story was still ongoing. <laughs> and the story continued for many, many years because even once Bill had been exonerated, the state still tried to wrap him up in the case in any way they could. So it was a long, long process. And we wanted to be sure that whatever product we put out as a book was 100% truthful, that we could stand behind every single thing we said, that we could document what we said, and that it was incontrovertible as far as the facts were concerned. So at that point, we published our book. All right. So that's the story of the book. But now we want to talk about the case. So there's much to cover. So let's do this. Let's briefly summarize the key facts of the case, including, say, time frame, the charges, Bill's age at the time of his arrest, his sentence, where the crime took place, and all of that great stuff. Okay, so Bill was 21 years old, and he found himself in Florida, living with his parents one hot summer, just kind of... Uh, picking up odd jobs, but spending a lot of time with friends on the beach. And he and his brother were driving one day, wanting to go over to the Pelican Bar to shoot some pool. And uh, they found themselves at the crime scene. And I'll let Bill tell that part of the story. I was a passenger and my brother was driving. And the basic sense of it was that he just pulled into the crime scene that had happened like four days prior, just to be nosy, just to check it out, just to see what was going on, plus to check out the waves. You can see the, when you park right up to the, at that point in time, you could see the waves and everything and looking. And the officers were still there as far as plain clothes. And they just pulled me out of the car and questioned me and over and over different questions and took my picture and asked me if I'd come down to the police station tomorrow. For some reason, they were pinned in on me like it was an automatic thing or something. And I didn't do it to my brother, but they did it to me. And I was, of course, bigger and taller than my brother. I, I figured it was some sort of a, a size matter because they were saying the man was beat to death. On the beach. Mm. The beach. Yeah. What was the crime itself, Bill? The crime was uh, felony murder. They were trying to say that it was robbery murder. And being it was robbery murder, they were looking for the basic sense of the crime of robbery first and then murder happening in the crime. So. They were trying to say that I was at the bar across the street and came over, didn't have any money, and came over and robbed this guy and then beat him to death. Okay. Uh, I've spoken with experts in the field about the factors, the key factors that contribute to a wrongful conviction. But it doesn't matter how many times we go over it, it absolutely bears repeating. So, Ellen, I thought if you could list each one of these factors and how they apply to Bill's case, that would be really terrific. Sure. I know that the, the number one main reason for wrongful convictions and up to 28% of all wrongful convictions is false eyewitness testimony. Now, that can be a mistaken identity in a simple case. For example, someone gets robbed or raped or hurt and it's dark and they name the wrong person. That's a simple case of mistaken identity. In Bill's case, however, it was not a simple case. It was contrived. They used a man who was blind in one eye as an eyewitness at the trial. They also used so-called friends of Bill, people he had met throughout the summer, to come to the trial and identify him as being seen in a bloody t-shirt that was found at the crime scene. These 
witnesses were worked by the sheriff's department to deliver what they wanted to hear on the stand, as well as a young lady that Bill had dated on and off for two weeks who came to the trial and said she saw Bill standing over the dead body. However, later we learned she was having sex with the chief detective in the case. And they put her on the stand as their star witness. So none of these were simple cases of mistaken identity or false eyewitness testimony. It was false, but it was deliberate. And there are other factors as well, right? You had indicated there are about five different contributing factors. Well, there's prosecutorial misconduct. Right. The use of junk science. Right. Ineffective assistance of counsel, Brady violations, tunnel vision, confirmation bias, coerced witnesses. You can go on and on. Another one that is very prevalent in cases of wrongful conviction would be a false confession. And that would be the only one of these that we've listed that were not present in Bill's case. He never capitulated as hard as they tried to get him to give a wrongful confession. He would not. Now, go back for a minute. I've covered this before, but once again, it's just so important to uh, mention it again and explain it. What's confirmation bias? So confirmation bias is an interesting thing. Human beings have a tendency to interpret information consistent with their desires or prior beliefs. So very often evidence is created to fit what the law enforcement officials believe were the facts of the case. Rather than collecting evidence and then outlining the facts of the case and having that lead to a suspect, they land on a suspect and then they look at the evidence in the light of that suspect as opposed to in the light of the evidence itself. So they want to confirm their bias, their belief in who committed the crime and how it was committed. And in Bill's case, they layered many, many pieces of false evidence or falsely interpreted evidence on top of more false evidence in order to confirm that he was indeed the perpetrator. It's kind of like taking bad evidence, telling it to a person that's not all the way, hasn't seen the evidence, and explaining the evidence to a person that's not rightly involved, but maybe a higher rank of sorts, and telling them the evidence, and then that person taking it and saying, oh, with all that evidence, he's got to be guilty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sort of confirms, sort of confirms a, a conviction or confirms a, the guilt. Right. And you also mentioned Brady violation. Explain that to our listeners as well. Sure. A Brady violation is where the prosecutors withhold exculpatory evidence. And in Bill's case, this happened in a couple of occasions. The main one was the day after he was indicted, someone had called a tip into the tip line at the sheriff's department saying, you've got the wrong guy. It had nothing to do with William Dillon. It was these two guys. And that tip was buried in the file and never looked at again, never followed up on and never looked at again. Never given to the defense. And why is the Brady violation so important? And can you explain where it began? Yeah, it was a case of, of Brady versus the state, I guess. I don't I don't know the exact Maryland, fact. I think. Maryland. I think. And they withheld exculpatory evidence from the defense, which could have possibly proven his innocence. 
And, you know, in the United States, you, you shouldn't have to prove your innocence. They have to prove your guilt. But unfortunately, it doesn't always work that way, especially when the prosecution has all the cards, including hiding evidence that does not fit their confirmation bias and where they want the case to go. So a Brady violation is one of the worst things you can do because in Bill's case, it would have led them down a completely different path toward completely different suspects who did in the end end up being the perpetrator. The phone call may not have been a Brady violation, but the fact was that the phone call was a Brady violation because the two names that were given were the two actual perpetrators. Incredible. So it could not be a Brady violation if somebody just calls and says, you've got the wrong guy. But the fact is, the phone call gave the two names and it was written down as the two perpetrators. And that should have been turned over. That should have been turned over to the defense, yeah. yes. Yeah. It's it's a Supreme Court ruling, and that's why it is so key to violate something that the Supreme Court has said you must do. And it, it happens way too much, way too much. Let's move, if you will, to the interrogation. And what stands out here in the interrogation? They did a dog-sniffing paper test. Mm-hmm. by harass too. It was a dog and a handler that were later disproven. They did a sniff test on two different areas, that, or three different areas. They tested me. Uh, they made me wad up a piece of paper when they first talked to me, and then they supposedly let me go. They did let me go, and then they supposedly ran like four or five people, wadded up papers, and the dog sent it off of the, the shirt that they had found at the crime scene that was originally DNA tested and found to be not mine. And they also did another test of taking me in a vehicle and parking me way back in the back of the parking lot in the middle of the night and walking me into the building. And they're saying that the dog tracked off of that shirt and tracked my scents into that doorway that they took me in and and on in through the building. So it's two different tests where they're saying the dog tracked me. They also did a test where they made me stand in a room and hold my hair. I had long hair down to my shoulders and the killer's description was already with a mustache and short hair. And they made me stand with my face, my left side of my face facing the wall and, uh, and to a judge's chamber's window, a mirror, and made me hold my hair with my right hand and pull my, my hair all the way over to the right side. So it made it look like I had a short hair to the, whoever was looking at me through the glass, which turned out to be the witness that my wife explained to you was half blind in one eye and, and blind in the other. Now, the name John Preston, I wanted to bring him in. Why does he play a a key role? You've just alluded to it, but I I wanted to mention his name. Yeah, John Preston was a dog handler. He hailed from the state of Pennsylvania, and he was a state trooper, and he started a a man-trailing business where he would work with different sheriff's departments to help them solve their crimes. However, as time went on, he was proven a charlatan. He worked with a dog named Harass 2. You can't have good intentions if you name your dog Harass 2. I guess there was a Harass 1 as well at one time. But Harass 2 would only answer to commands in German. According to Preston, the dog was never wrong, always led him from the crime scene to the perpetrator, and could trail and scent a crime scene in Bill's case, eight days after a hurricane had washed the crime scene clean. They also claimed the dog could scent weapons on the bottom of a lake while he hung over the back of a boat. 
There were so many outrageous claims that they attributed to this dog handler, John Preston and his dog, that were absolutely unbelievable. And it turned out that he was a fraud. And receiving information from the higher-ups. Yes, it was proven by many uh, people that were deposed that he would get information from the sheriffs on who the suspect was. And sure enough, his dog was never wrong. And two years after the trial, there were some big questions raised about Preston, right? Yes. Believe it or not, the state of Florida has still not declared him a fraud. And there's still people sitting in prison in cases where they used Preston to help solidify their convictions. Mm -hmm. It's outrageous. It certainly is. Now, the next piece of evidence in the case was the bloody yellow T-shirt. Talk about that and how that figured into the case. Well, when they began to examine the crime scene, they found a bloody yellow T-shirt. It said, surf it across it. The the yellow surf it T-shirt was taken by the killer up on the street and he was hitchhiking. Yeah. He was hitchhiking and and he got picked up into a truck and taken down approximately a few miles from the crime scene on the beach, A1A. And he dropped him off and the killer left the shirt in the truck. The next day, he saw the crime on the TV, and he called police. After he cleaned, conveniently cleaned out his truck, he mm. threw it in the garbage and cleaned and wiped his truck completely down and called police and said that he'd just thrown a bloody T-shirt in the garbage can that he picked up from an individual he picked up right across the street from that murder scene. So they came and got the, the yellow surfer T-shirt from that trash can, checked his truck, but he had wiped down all the prints and everything out of the truck. So they weren't able to do anything but no, have that yellow surfer T-shirt, that. which they're saying was part of their crime scene. But at that time, was there DNA testing available for the shirt? No. Back in 1981. So they did some blood tests on it that were inconclusive. Also confused the jury a little bit because they went as far as looking at enzymes, not just blood types. And they confused the jury about it. They managed to convince the jury that that was crime scene evidence. And then using the dog, they linked the shirt to Bill and none of that ended up being done accurately. So it's what we call junk science, the whole use of the dog using misleading or manipulated forensic laboratory results is also considered part of the junk science that we outline very in very deep detail in the book. Consider the shirt was being used as, as testimony to convict me. There was nothing in the testimony that said that the shirt had anything off me, blood, or any consideration to any kind of evidence against me, but yet it was used at the trial like it made me look guilty and it, in such a way that was, I don't know how to explain it. It was like, yeah. I mean, I had people come up and testify that my blood was not on it or anything like that there. And they, they couldn't even clarify that the victim's blood was on it. So it was like, how did you use that shirt to convict me? And there was no real, there was no real evidence Physical to say it. Yeah, but they did get but they did. some coerced witnesses in the neighborhood to come up and say they had seen Bill in a similar yellow T-shirt the evening. Of- yeah, another similar. But while I was in prison, that was part of my strategy or, or my, my options. That's what I used to, to fight the courts with, that the shirt was not originally in the crime scene. I didn't wear it. I didn't know it, what, what it was. So I didn't know if it was involved or not. But the way they explained it in the trial, I couldn't see that it was involved in the crime. 
because they never said it belonged to me or him. But at, at the end of the day, doesn't the shirt... Yes. Yeah, the shirt does at the end of the day, but back before we knew anything or anything like that, Harriet, it was like I was using it because it didn't say it belonged to me and it didn't say it belonged to the victim. So why was it in the scene? And they're using it. They have a dog tracking off of it and they have all this other stuff off of it. How is all this evidence any good if the shirt doesn't belong to the crime scene? That's right. All right. So we we have a few minutes left. And if it's okay with you, I wanted to talk about the trial. Before we do that, we have to you know close out. And you did say you'd come back for um, at least uh, one more podcast with us. What could we say about the trial, maybe the selection of the jury, you know, who the key players were? Why don't we set the scene and then we'll start from there next time? Okay. Jury, as far as the jury goes, I mean, I was just told to be quiet and sit there and scribble on a piece of paper pad. Uh, they picked the jury. To be honest with you, I was happy with it, but I didn't feel like I was going to be convicted. I hadn't committed the crime. so You were confident that you Yeah, sure. I, I knew I hadn't done anything wrong, and I believed in the system. It wasn't like I didn't believe in the system. I believe I've watched many television shows, but I realized the reality and life in reality is not a television show, but that's what I thought. Yeah. All right. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to close this out with your wonderful creation, uh, your song, Black Robes and Lawyers. Bill, before we play Black Robes and Lawyers, can you maybe give us some background on the song or anything, you know, what motivated you to write it? Anything you want to say about the song? Uh, yes. Uh, Black Robes and Lawyers was written on toilet paper. It was the very first song I've ever written. I've written many poems in my life, but Black Robes and Lawyers was the first song. I didn't actually write it as a song. I wrote it as a, just a just a documentation. I didn't have any paper. I had a little plastic bendable pen. They had just hosed us down from inside the cell. So I only had toilet paper and a plastic pen. And I wrote Black Robes and Lawyers just as a as a pleading message, sort of, to I wanted people to hear, not, not thinking that anybody was ever going to hear it. But it was just a way for me to get something out, you know, something out of the out of my head or out of, you know, some sort of plea or some sort of cry about I needed some help, basically, in a sense, you know, just basic sense of it was just, I guess it was just pouring out Black Robes right. and Lawyers. And uh, we look forward to your return next time on Pursuing Justice. I, As I always do, I want to thank the Innocence Project of Florida for sponsoring my podcast. And uh, I hope you'll join us next time on Pursuing Justice. And here's Bill singing Black Robes and Lawyers. My name is William Michael Dillon. I was arrested for murder on August 26, 1981, for a crime I didn't commit. I was released on November 18, 2008. Thank you for the Keepers of Justice. Took me away when I was a teen. Not really more than a boy, just lean. Sent to hell's prison to seal my fate. Only my will to survive. Let me reach that gate. Let me reach that gate. Let me reach that gate. I had to reach that gate. Black robes and lights. Just to serve it will be done. Black robes and lights. Lady Justice lost this one. I was t-
taken by the laws of justice. Oh, yeah. Cast away as a stone. Left the rod in the dungeon for the murder of a man I didn't know. It's a crime, you'll pay for that. Don't you know that it's a fact? A fact you know where your freedom shame. Cause in the prison yard a stone bears your name. Bears your name. Bears your name. Bears your name. Just bear my name. Black robes and lawyers. Just to serve it will be done. Black robes and lawyers. Lady Justice lost this one. Trapped in a hell of hatred and strife Everywhere was death and despair As time went by, I began to not even care I didn't even care No, I didn't care Didn't even care No, I didn't care No, 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 Whenever I can, in my youth I wondered who would I be. Now I'm nothing more than what they made of me. 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 All and all, I was an innocent man. Frame me for murder because they can't. Innocence I had has all gone away. The truth of it is, they did the crime, and I had to pay. I had to pay. Yes, I had to pay. Yes, I had to pay. Yes, I had to pay. I had to pay. I'm the one who paid. I'm the only one who paid. Black bulls and lights. Just to serve it will be done. Black bulls and lights. Lady Justice lost this one.